Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. Well, this morning, we are continuing a sermon series that we've been in throughout the summer, um, where we've been preaching through the book of 1 Timothy. This is Paul's first letter uh, to a younger pastor named Timothy, who he left behind to pastor a church that he had actually planted in a city called Ephesus. And Paul, uh, we've called this series, The Church's One Foundation, because in this letter, Paul is talking to Timothy about what makes a church a church. What are his priorities to be as a pastor? What are the priorities of the church leadership to be? And ultimately, of course, the foundation of the church is Jesus. How do you build a church on the foundation of Christ that represents him in the world? And so this morning, we're going to continue that. Uh, Our scripture reading this morning is going to be 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11 through chapter 5, verse 16. And if you're willing and able, would you stand as we read God's word? Again, our scripture reading begins in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture to exhortation, and to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers day and night. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, and has washed the feet of saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows, for their passions draw them away from Christ, and they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Beside that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. 
So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. This is God's word. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. You can be seated. All right. This passage uh, is a bit of a doozy, a lot going on in here. Uh, But what I want us to understand uh, about what Paul is telling Timothy here is that Paul, in these two halves of this passage, is arguing one consistent thing to Timothy and for the church, that for the church to be a credible witness of Jesus in its culture and in any culture, the church has to have integrity of message and life. Right, that the church has to, uh, there has to be an integrity, a connection between what the church uh, believes, preaches, and embraces in its theology and the way that it lives in its relationships among its members. The church has to have integrity. We are living, uh, and maybe every age feels like we're living uh, through what, what could be called a crisis of integrity in the church. Right, if you were to ask uh, people uh, outside of the church, in fact, there have been studies that have done this where you go and kind of ask people outside the church who don't identify with the church, why don't you go to church? Usually the answer has something to do, in some words, with a lack of integrity. They might call it hypocrisy, that they uh, claim one thing but then live another. They might call it judgmentalism, right? They talk about grace and forgiveness, but then seem to operate as, as moral police. Or it might be uh, owing to kind of the high-profile moral failings that we see in the church, whether it be of uh, abuse within churches or financial uh, malpractice or narcissism within churches. We see all of this, and it amounts to a crisis of integrity. We usually think of integrity as a negative term, right? Uh, We think about it usually when it fails, right? So that we think to have integrity means that you don't mess up publicly or in a big way that you don't get caught uh, in some momentary indiscretion. But gospel integrity in the church is just as much positive as it is negative. It doesn't just mean you don't screw up or you don't uh, publicly violate your principles, but it also means a positive integrity where every bit of the life of the church is lived as an expression of the gospel that our life matches up with what we believe, that the church lives its life and orders its life in such a way that an outsider or a visitor could look and go, oh yeah, that makes sense. It makes sense that a group of people who believe these things would live in this kind of way because it causes a disconnect for our world when there is just this jarring divorce between what we claim to believe and the way that we live. For the church, integrity in the gospel means a consistent connection between what we preach and how we live, between the stated beliefs of the church and the lived relational culture of the church, that those two things should make sense together. And so Paul is concerned uh, to impress this on Timothy. And so on the first part of what we read, he's concerned with what Timothy believes and preaches. You notice that he talks about watch yourself and your teaching. Immerse yourself in the scriptures, 
right? So he's talking positively about keeping the gospel central to the life of the church. And then in the second part, he's talking about one particular set of relationships in the church, the way the church takes care of and serves and equips widows in the church as they seek to live together as a family. And so that's what we're going to look at today is, one, the call to keep the gospel central to our lives and to our church. And then secondly, the call to live out the gospel in community such that our professed message and our lived culture make sense together. First, keeping the gospel central. He starts, uh, command and teach these things and let no one despise you or look down on you for your youth. You know, I used to identify with this. When I started, I thought of myself as a young pastor. Uh, and I think I still, I still count. Um, but when we got into this, I was in my early 30s. Um, and now I'm older than that. But what Paul is saying, he said, we, we think that Timothy was in uh, his mid to late 20s, most likely, when he was set over the church of Ephesus as a pastor. And what Timothy, what, what Paul's saying to Timothy is, look, I've given you a lot of responsibility. Think about the stuff that he's already commanded Timothy to do to correct false teaching, to train up elders, to, to raise up deacons. He's, he's called to a grown-up job, this pastoral calling that he has. And he's saying, don't let people look down on you because you're, you might be younger than them. Because the power of your ministry doesn't have to do with your age. In fact, it has nothing to do with you at all. That The power behind Christian ministry is the power of the gospel. Right, You might be a young man or an old man, a young woman or an old woman. You might uh, find yourself as a leader or as a member in a church. And yet the power behind your life and your ministry doesn't have to do with your qualifications. It doesn't have to do with how ready you feel yourself to be, how mature you believe yourself to be. That the power behind the church isn't us. It's not our qualifications. It's the gospel of Jesus. That is the good news of all that God is doing to save sinners through Jesus, through his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection. That, that that power of God making a way for sinners to be forgiven and to have a place in his household, that that for Paul was the power behind all of his ministry. We get something of a mission statement for Paul in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Paul says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Right? That the gospel itself is the power that gives rise to the church's ministry, that gives rise to you and I in our life and our callings. That the gospel is the power. We tend to think that the power for change, the power for mission, the power for the ministry of the church rests in the gifts of the extraordinarily gifted, right? You think about uh, who is an evangelist and we think about Billy Graham or we think about uh, maybe other people that come to mind as a powerful personal evangelist or a powerful preacher. We think, uh, you know, if we just had the right, uh, the right gifts, the right, uh, right preachers, then, then the church would be fruitful and we would spread and things would go great. But what Paul says is, no, it actually isn't about the communicator. It's about the message of what's communicated. 
right? That you can be an incredibly powerful communicator, but if you're communicating something other than the powerful saving gospel of Jesus, then the church itself isn't going to bear fruit and be powerful. That The power is not in our gifts, our abilities, our age, or our wisdom. It's not you. It's Jesus. He is the one with the power. And it's power for salvation. Look at what he says in verse 16. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, we have to read this in light of everything else Paul writes everywhere else, right? Which is that we don't actually save ourselves. We don't actually save anyone. I've never saved anyone, right? That God alone is the one who saves, that salvation belongs to God and him alone, that it's the gospel that saves. But what he's saying is, Timothy, if you lean on the gospel, if you lean on the message of Jesus's death and resurrection, to the extent that you lean on that, that alone is your hope for salvation, not only your own, but the church, right? The, the, the gospel isn't just your hope for salvation. It's the hope for the salvation of the church, I didn't know until I became a pastor uh, what a huge industry selling stuff to pastors is, right? There, there is a, I mean, sometimes I almost feel like the only stuff we get in the mail to our church address is advertisements for the latest book, the latest conference, the latest curriculum, right? Uh, I think most of the people in our church have my cell phone for better or worse. So typically if somebody needs me, they call my cell phone. Uh, if somebody calls the church line, most likely they're trying to sell us something. And there is a hunger, I think, in pastors to figure out, hey, what's the, what's the latest wisdom? What's the latest way to cause my church to grow and life to thrive and people to be well? What's the magic pill that we can swallow that's going to turn this thing around? That's going to empower our mission? And I love this, this message of Paul because Paul warns us here. Look, the answer is not out there somewhere, right? The answer is not in the latest fad or the coolest music or the best curriculum, right? We do that in our personal life too, don't we? We think about, well, man, my marriage will be right if I just read the right book about communication. My parenting, my kids are going to turn out better if I just read the right book and master the right techniques. And Paul says, no, no, no. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation is in the gospel, to the extent that you ground your life, ground your parenting, ground your marriage, and Lord knows ground your church on the message of God's grace, on the freely given gospel, to that extent it bears fruit and grows and has life in it. So Paul calls Timothy's attention really to two things. He says, pay attention to yourself and to your teaching. Right, so pay attention to the gospel. Make sure that your teaching continues to be the life-saving, life-giving power of the gospel. And watch out for yourself. Right? Be suspicious of yourself. Don't assume that just because you're a pastor that your motives are always right, that you're always prayerful, always holy, always growing. Pay attention to your heart and make sure that your own heart stays needy of the gospel, so that the gospel stays fresh in your own life. And I think that's the same across vocations, right? If you're a parent, we tend to think, you know, what keeps us up at night is how am I going to get through to this kid, right? How am I going to, how am I going to fix this situation? How am I going to get them to turn out just right? 
But the gospel says, no, no, pay attention to your own heart. What's the posture of your own heart before God? Pay attention to yourself and what you're you're functionally trusting in and resting in. Keep the gospel central to our lives and to our church. And then secondly, Paul turns his attention to making sure that Timothy and the church that he leads are living out the gospel in community. Eugene Peterson, one of my, he's deceased now, but he's one of my pastoral mentors from a distance, said that he came to understand that his job as a pastor was to get the gospel lived out in ordinary people's everyday life, right? To get folks to believe it and then to go from the mind to the heart and then get lived out in work, in relationships, in church life. And Paul seems to be concerned very much with the same thing. He says, first, Timothy, keep it central. And then make sure that the church is living it out in your social relationships. The gospel uh, is something that on the one hand, we can't really live. It's something that comes from outside of us. It's an announcement of God's action. God uh, is the God who announces good news to us in Jesus. But everywhere that Paul writes, he urges the church to live all of life in a response to the gospel. Maybe this happens most famously in Romans chapter 12, where Paul, after having gone through 11 chapters of explaining the gospel, all that it means to be forgiven and justified by faith, what it means to rely on Christ's record instead of our own, he then says, therefore, right, in light of all of that, we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. In light of God's grace, in light of his salvation, we offer our life, our bodies, as a living response to what God has done for us so that our life has integrity with the message of the gospel. And Paul puts his finger on one issue in particular, which is the role of widows in the life of the church. You can almost think he does this like a There's other areas, there's other things that he has talked about and will talk about. But he says, look, one of the places where it gets tested, one of the places where you can look at to test whether or not a church or any person truly believes and lives what they say they believe is how do they tend to and take care of the most vulnerable people in their midst? How do they look after those who come in in a position of weakness and need? And in the ancient world, uh, widows were among the most vulnerable people in all of society. In fact, if you look, um, if Timothy was doing his job, right? If Timothy was doing the stuff that Paul had already told him to do, teaching the scriptures, immersing himself in the scriptures, teaching it to his people, what the people would have met in those scriptures is a God who cared deeply for the vulnerable. Right? They would have met a God who was a father to the fatherless and the protector of widows. Right? Throughout the Old Testament, uh, God talks uh, that his people should have a special care and concern for this uh, triumvirate of people. They always get mentioned together. The orphan, the widow, and the alien. The orphan, those without parents. The widow, those without a spouse. And the alien, those without a home. In the ancient world, those were the most vulnerable people in society. And so God said in Israel, these people matter to me and they're going to matter to you. 
As Timothy uh, opened up the scriptures, he would have met, his church would have met the God who loves and cares for widows. The God who is not only the God of Abraham and Sarah, but also the God of Hagar and Ishmael. When she went out with her son into the desert under a tree to die, the God who showed up for her and who she named, this is the God who sees me. In a world that ignores me, this is a God who sees me. They would have met the God of Ruth and Naomi, two widows who had nothing to cling to except for each other and the promises of their God, who God wrote into the life story and genealogy of his king, David, and then the Messiah, Jesus. Maybe above all, they would have met the God of the widow, who when Jesus on the cross was dying, looked at his mother, herself, we believe, a widow, now losing her son. And he looked at John, his beloved disciple, and he said, you take care of her, right? This is now your son and this is your mother. Because in my people, no one is left alone and the widow has a place where she matters. And so into this church, he says, take care of the widows. He does this thing where he, if, if you notice it's a little jarring. He says to summarize, hey, make sure you're taking care of the real widows, the truly widows, and not these other widows. And you go, okay, what's going on there? What, 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 why does Paul have it against young widows for some reason? But what he's doing takes a little bit of cultural background to understand. In the ancient Roman world, unlike our world, widows could not inherit the estate of their deceased husband. So husband dies, usually uh, in Western countries now, uh, husband dies, wife gets whatever the husband leaves behind, and then when she dies, the kids get it. In the ancient world, uh, the wife kept nothing uh, out of, uh, in her widowhood. Instead, uh, a wife came into marriage with a dowry, which was some money that her father had set aside for her to bring into marriage. That dowry was meant to be sustained and then given back to her in the event that her husband died so that she could live on that. And her heir, the husband's heir, uh, was obligated to take care of her. Most likely her oldest son would get the house and he was to give her a place to live and to belong and to take care of her. That's why Paul's talking so much about, hey, the true widows, the true widows, the ones who are totally without, uh, without, are those who've fallen through the cracks of that social safety net. They don't have a dowry. They don't have a child or their child uh, is neglecting them in some way. And when that happens, the church should step in and treat this woman as though she's a member of their own family. Notice what he says in the first verses of five, that the church is basically to operate like a family. Treat the older men with respect, treat the older women as mothers, treat the younger men as brothers, the younger women as sisters. That regardless of, of blood or culture or ethnic background or any of that, that the church was meant to be a family that shared their burdens together and cared for one another. And so he's saying, look, the church as family has an obligation to care for the most vulnerable members of their family. And now if a widow was in the church and she did have means somehow through her dowry, or she had a child who had brought her into their home. He's saying, look, the, that family should take care of the widow first and foremost, and then let the church help with those in real need. 
So that's the broad strokes of what Paul's doing here. Notice what he says. I think this is um, an important point for us. Notice what he says about the family having the primary responsibility for caring for a widow or caring for those in need. You know, I think this is an important issue for us because our culture uh, has some real challenges in the way that we care for those who are aging and alone. Uh, John Stott, in his commentary on this passage, he was a a Brit, but uh, was deeply involved in uh, church work around the world. And one of the things he said on this passage was, is in the Western world, we have, a real, we have a real hard time living out this commitment to care for, our, for, for the aging and alone members of our church. He says, when I travel to Africa, when I travel to Asia, cultures that are arranged more in extended families than in nuclear families, this part kind of comes naturally. It's very natural for uh, a widow's child to bring her into their home and for her to live with them and for families to live in households of multiple generations. But in, in the West, in, in America, that usually doesn't happen as much. It certainly happens at times. And I know as a pastor that many of our members, many of you guys, are in that challenging place of caring for in, uh, aging parents near the end of life. And it's a challenge to walk those parents through that with dignity and love. We live in a culture that prizes the young and the productive. We value those who bring something into our lives that we benefit from. And we have a difficult time making space in our lives for those who are no longer as productive and who ask more of us than it seems like we get from them. I had a friend, uh, not here, but a friend, uh, two friends in Orlando when I was living there, uh, one of whom was in uh, the storage business. They built, uh, you know, the storage places where you got too much junk, you go put your junk. I had another friend who developed uh, retirement homes, nursing homes. And when they met, he said, oh, we're basically in the same business. It's the same model. We both take things off of people's hands that they don't know what to do with anymore. And you go, how sad is that? He wasn't wasn't saying it's a good thing. (laughs) But it's true that in our culture, we have have an out-of-sight, out-of-mind approach often to the care of the most needy members of our community, easily forgotten, easily left. What Paul says here, look, if you neglect those most vulnerable, if you neglect those who don't offer much towards you but seem to only need from you, then you've actually neglected the faith and your soul is in some kind of danger. Right? That it's a part of the gospel. It's an outgrowth of the gospel. The God who cares for us when we bring nothing to him in return. That we live out and care for those who are easily forgotten and easily swept away. But then he says, look, if the family breaks down, when uh, that net doesn't hold, the church has an obligation to care for the vulnerable and the alone. To treat one another as though they really are a family. It's actually one of the most beautiful things uh, that I see in our church is the way that we do live life 
uh, as family, especially when it comes to these most vulnerable people. One of the ways that I've seen it in our church is we've been blessed to have several members adopt uh, over the last several years. And it's truly felt like as a church, it wasn't just a family who adopted, it was we adopted, right? We're in it with you, whatever you need, however we can support you, however we can pray for you, right? That we want to be a place where we share one another's callings and obligations and grow with one another as family. Well, Paul goes on uh, to give some criteria for how uh, they should help widows. And this, this is one of the more confusing parts of the passage because he, he seems to put character qualifications on those who should be enrolled as widows. Did you notice that? He said, look, if you've raised your family well, practiced hospitality, been a member of the church, then enroll her on the list of widows. Yeah. What we think is going on here is that the widow became not only a recipient of mercy in the early church, but also something like an office of ministry. Very early on in the early church, some of the early church fathers uh, in the letters of Ignatius, Polycarp, and Tertullian, um, if if anybody's out there considering baby names, you can do worse than Ignatius, Polycarp, and Tertullian. In their early letters, so we're talking first 200 years of the Christian church, we see them writing to early churches with instructions for the holy widows who had a ministry of prayer and mercy and care of orphans. So it seems like what happened was the, the, the widows in the early church weren't simply to be the recipients of mercy from the church, but were to take some of the capacity that they had as likely older women in the, in the faith, uh, no longer attached to a living husband or young children, that they, uh, those who are qualified, and that's what Paul's giving some character qualifications here, would take a role of service similar to kind of a diaconal role in the life of the early church. What I love about this is it shows a principle of the way that the church shows mercy and the way that God shows mercy is that it gives the dignity to those who receive to not just be on the receiving end of charity, but to receive the dignity of a calling to give that same love and mercy to, those, to others in their lives. Right? And think about this, uh, that the widow was transformed in the church from being the most vulnerable and easily overlooked to being, to being somebody who had a station for ministry, a necessary part in the life of the church. When the church is a family, each member brings a gift to share. No one comes without something to contribute to the overall health of the family. The way that our world works, if you've noticed, uh, is the world works uh, between haves and have-nots, right? There's those who are benefactors and have something to give, and those who are beneficiaries and who receive. There's the powerful who have means to help others, and there's the weak who receive help. And this, this role of the widow here is, is one way of planting a flag and saying, that's not going to be that way in the church, The church is not meant to be a community where there's some who do the helping and others who receive the help, where there's some who have gifts and some who have needs. But instead, it's supposed to be a community of mutual need and mutual giving, 
right? Because where, there's, where you have that constant benefactor and beneficiary relationship, you can never really have genuine community, right? There's always going to be some who feel one step down and some who feel one step up. But in the church, it was meant to be where everyone brings need. Everyone has needs that need meeting. And everyone brings gifts from the oldest to the youngest, where we need one another and we give to one another. And in this, we live out the gospel. The gospel creates this kind of mutuality because it brings us both, it brings all people into the community from a position of need. Right? The, the beginning of the gospel is that you are a sinner in need of salvation. Every member of our church who's taken membership vows stood up here and started with the confession, I confess I am a sinner without hope except for God's mercy. Right? That's the, the loan entry requirement, is a confession of your need and a turning to Christ. And so at a community where we're unified by our need, and unified by God's grace, unified by the idea that God has poured his mercy into each of our lives, not just so that we can use it ourselves and benefit ourselves, but so that we can share it with one another. We become a community that can believe the gospel, receive the gospel, and then live it out together in relationships of mercy and grace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do long uh, to be a church marked by integrity. We long for, for that in our individual lives, Lord, that we would be people of integrity, people whose lives make sense and grow out of what we believe about who you are and what you've done for us. Lord, I pray that you would give us that gracious integrity that doesn't pretend to be better than we are, that doesn't hide our faults and our flaws, but it lives every moment in joyful gratitude that though we are great uh, sinners, though we have so much need, that you fill us and you send us and you give us your gifts to share with one another and with the world. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at Christchurchintown.org.